welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams of pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. We have been, can I just say, knocking it out of the park oh. lately. <laughs> oh, okay. I wasn't, I wasn't following you at first, but I realized you're doing a baseball thing. You are absolutely correct. We have been knocking it out of the park. Uh, we had Katie Sikelski last week. Yes. Who was so wonderful. So wonderful. Um, we've been getting a lot of emails from people who um, may or may not be on the show in the mm. future. So mm-hmm. stay tuned for that. Yep. And also, frankly, um, it's a little less work for us. So, hey, we're always... <laughs> you know what? The Triviality Boys really haven't figured they, out. They haven't figured Hi guys. out. Yeah. Hey, guys. Hey, Neil. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Hey, Neil. <laughs> Those other guys, they they don't care for us. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Podcast brothers. That's what we do. Um, so, yeah, it's been really great. And uh, thanks to everybody who's who've been on the show so far and everyone who's going to be on the show soon. We're really excited about it. And uh, I'm looking forward to learning a lot about everything. Everything. Oh, y'all are so knowledgeable about such a vast array and such specific things it's great and we're so excited for you guys to start listening to it but um unfortunately uh you got the classics with just me and julia today <laughs> the og miss Infopod team og miss Infopod team now with pink hair yes julia has pink hair now uh we'll be sure to post a picture of that <laughs> if you haven't seen it already on social media it's so cute i am supremely jealous (laughs) it's uh very good and very trendy and when i saw her i screamed it was so good so anyway speaking of um trendy trendy and artistic yeah we'll go with that close um as you know i work for an art museum and so i uh decided to uh do a topic on a specific uh woman artist that maybe not everybody knows about Mm mm-hmm um, so today, my topic is Don't Be So Bourgeois, Louise Bourgeois. I can't wait. Oh, I know a little bit about her, but not a lot. Yes. And I also brought, uh, today I brought for you some visuals. visuals. So what I was thinking is that, um, I mean, I'll post all these visuals mm-hmm. on the Twitter and we'll post it on the Facebook page as well so that you guys can follow along or eventually see. Um, but I'm going to show the artwork to Julia and then Julia can hopefully describe it. I'm. This is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> it is. Besides me trying to describe a person that I saw and Julia drawing that person. Yes. yes. So that's also one of my favorite games. So. Louise Bourgeois was born on December 25th, 1911 in Paris, France. Uh, She was the second child of three born to parents, uh, Josephine Ferriot and Louis Bourgeois. Uh, She had an older sister and a younger brother, and her parents owned a gallery that dealt primarily in antique tapestries. So a few years after her birth, the family moved out of Paris and set up a workshop for tapestry restoration below their apartment in Choisy-le-Roi, for which Bourgeois filled in the designs where they had become worn. So Louis Bourgeois would like... Prepared. Yes. Fill in that stuff. Uh, Bourgeois' mother, uh, Josephine, suffered from ill health, and Louise cared for her for long periods of time. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about our parents. So Bourgeois' mother and father had very different characters. Mm. Uh, her mother had a logical and intellectual approach to life in contrast to the emotive and passionate character of her father. These opposing, okay. these opposing forces uh, became a key theme of much of her later work. And her double-headed sculpture suggests the sense of two very separate forces relentlessly attached together, um, which we'll get to in a moment. And that's very okay. So let's talk about her dad. All right. Wow. Louis Bourgeois, what a dick. Okay. Yeah. Huge dick. Ready for that. So Louise often recalled her adulterous, psychologically abusive father. Uh, He had an affair with her English governess, which her mother was unable to even acknowledge. Um, She also told of how he regaled dinner guests with stories of how unattractive she was and ridiculed her large breasts. Aww. So Louis Bourgeois, uh, Put him in the column of bag of dicks. Yeah, just a bag of dicks. And she really, I mean, ironically, mm, keep bag of dicks in mind. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That's not not something you hear every day. No, it's not. But with Louise Bourgeois, 
You should always have that bag of dicks. <laughs> you should always have it in the back of your mind. Okay. So in 1930, at 20 years old, Bourgeois entered the Sorbonne to study mathematics and geometry. Okay. Uh, subjects that she valued for their stability. This is very interesting. She said, I got peace of mind only through the study of rules nobody could change. Her mother died in 1932, which inspired her to abandon mathematics and to begin studying art. Um, this and her father's unfaithfulness, um, he not only uh, cheated on her mother with the governess, he had a series of mistresses over the course mm-hmm. of their relationship. Sure. Um, it led to a fear of abandonment in Louise, um, which is a key theme in her work. Uh, the backdrop of the First World War, which began when she was three, made her traumatic memories of childhood even more intense. She continued to study art by joining classes where translators were needed for English-speaking students, in which those translators were not charged tuition, so she got to take extra classes. Um, In one such class, uh, Fernand Leger saw her work and told her that she was a sculptor, not a painter. Uh, Bourgeois took a job as a docent, and she led tours at the Musée de Louvre. Louvre. Musée de Louvre. Right? Oh, you're laughing at me. I'm sorry, everyone. The French will not last very long, I promise. She moves to America eventually. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) Louise graduated from the Sorbonne in 1935, and she began studying art in Paris, first at the École des Beaux-Arts and the École du Louvre. Okay, whenever Lauren (laughs) speaks French like that, she is curling up her face, and she's using her, she's putting her hand out and, like, extending it as though... (laughs) As though she's like the old witch in Snow White handing someone an apple. <laughs> well, that's picture that when you hear École de Beaux-Arts. <laughs> École de Beaux-Arts. So now I, the reason why I do that is because my friend Maggie, who is studying French, said the French don't speak with their whole mouths like Americans do, where we move all our lips and tongue and teeth. The French speak from a tiny little hole in the middle of their mouths. <laughs> So, so I always think of that every time. Maybe that's why my French accent is so bad. <laughs> anyway, she went to the School of Beaux Arts and the School of the Louvre. Right? That's Ecole, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. after 1932 in the Independent Academies of Montparnasse and Montmartre and studied with uh, André Lotte, Fernand Léger, and Paul Collin. Uh, Bourgeois had a desire for first-hand experience and frequently visited studios in Paris, learning techniques from the artists and assisting with exhibitions. So she just threw herself into the art world um, in Paris in the 1930s. This was like her thing. So that's, she met... And that's the time to do it. Oh, yeah. She was like super into it. So, oh, by the way, specifically, um, Louise uh, Bourgeois was never like really didn't consider herself like any one particular kind of artist. Mm -hmm. She kind of like moved through a bunch of things, which I'll talk about. Um, But she has been categorized alternately as an, uh, an expressionist and a surrealist. Okay. So both things. So this expression of, you know, her father and his terrible relationship with her and his terrible treatment of her and this whole thing is the expression that runs through her um, artwork. But the surrealism, we'll get to the surrealism, but it's very obvious. So, um, she opened a print shop next door to her father's tapestry gallery, um, where she met a customer, um, who was the visiting American art professor, Robert Goldwater. Um, so they married and they moved to the United States where he taught at New York, at New York university at NYU. Um, they had three sons, um, and they had adopted one of those sons. Um, Bourgeois settled in New York city with her husband in 1938, just before the breakout of the second world war, which was very timely. Um, she studied at the Art Students League of New York, studying painting under uh, Vaclav Vitsalil, and also produced sculptures and prints. Um, she said, quote, the first painting had a grid. The grid is a very peaceful thing because nothing can go wrong. Everything is complete. There is no room for anxiety. Everything has a place. Everything is welcome. So she had a little touch of the OCD. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, she did it first. Okay. Very organized had a very um, strong sense of uh, order because mm-hmm. her life like was so chaotic. To control things because things in her life had been so tumultuous. Yes, exactly. So, but this changes soon. So, um, for Bourgeois, the early 1940s represented the difficulties of a transition to a new country and the struggle to enter the exhibition world of New York City. It was very difficult. Um, her work during this time was constructed from junkyard scraps and driftwood, which she used to carve upright wood sculptures. Um, The impurities of the wood were then camouflaged with paint, after which nails were employed to inflict holes and scratches in the attempt to portray some emotion. Hmm. So she would create these objects that were very 
um, Lydia and rigid. And then she would kind of like mess them up a little bit to kind of get out what she felt like needed to be made. Um, And this was not super successful for her, but the sleeping figure, which is this top one that I'm going to show you is one such example, which depicts uh, a war figure that is unable to face the real world due to vulnerability. All right. It's not a sleeping figure. He's standing upright. It looks like if you, hmm, it looks like if you take a bunch of wine corks and stack them on top of each other and then give them like two chopsticks for ski poles, that's what this looks like. Perfect. Sleeping it's figure, 1950. Ideal. Um, it's very um, it's very thin and tall. It reminds me a little bit of Giacometti sculptures, mm-hmm. um, in, but less uh, figural. Mm-hmm. This is very like sculpturesque. These are objects, not people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so throughout her life, Bourgeois' work was created from visit revisiting her own troubled past as she found inspiration and temporary catharsis from her childhood years and the abuse she suffered from her father. Um, slowly, she developed more artistic confidence, although her middle years are more opaque, which might be due to the fact that she received very little attention from the art world despite having her first solo show in 1945, or because by the 1950s and early 1960s, there are gaps in her production as she became immersed in psychoanalysis. So the psychoanalysis thing really started like, it it really made itself known in her work, which we'll get to. Um, In 1951, her father died and she became an American citizen. So um, sexuality is undoubtedly one of the most important themes in the work of Louise Bourgeois. Uh, The link between sexuality and fragility or insecurity is also powerful. It has been argued that this stems from her childhood memories and of her father's affairs. So 1952 Spiral Woman, which is right there on the second, uh, combines Louise's focus on female sexuality and torture. Um, The flexing leg and arm muscles indicate that the spiral woman is still above though she is being suffocated and hung. The spiral in her work demonstrates the dangerous search for precarious equilibrium, accident-free permanent change, disarray, vertigo, whirlwind. There lies the simultaneous positive and negative, both future and past, break up and return, hope and vanity, plan and memory. This doesn't look like a woman, everybody. It looks like an (laughs) Ikea lamp. (laughs) Oh, you know, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, It's like if you uh, stacked a bunch of... uh, um, clothes pins clothes pins and then did the spiral thing and did the spiral like thing. some people have as like an old-timey craft wind chime yes exactly and it's painted white um so both of these pieces as you could possibly notice are just like thin tall sculpture structures right mm-hmm. so abstract abstract extremely abstract so um she said, the spiral is important to me. It is a twist. As a child, after washing tapestries in the river, I would turn and twist and wring them. Later, I would dream of my father's mistress. I would do it in my dream by wringing her neck. The spiral, I love the spiral, represents control and freedom. Oh, boy. Yeah. Louise. Yeah. So, in 1954, she joined the American Abstract Artists Group with several contemporaries, among them Barrett Newman and Ad Reinhardt. And at this time, she also befriended the artists Willem de Kooning, Mark Rothko, and Jackson Pollock. So mm-hmm. she was like still hanging, hanging out with, with them. the best of the best. So as part of this group, uh, Bourgeois made the transition from wood and upright structures to marble, plaster, and bronze as she investigated concerns like fear, vulnerability, and loss of control. So instead of sticking with this kind of like rigid control thing because of her... Um, like entrance into psychoanalysis and like allowing herself to feel her feelings, she started to work a little bit more chaotically. Okay. So this transition was a turning point and she referred to her art as a series or sequence closely related to days and circumstances, describing her early work as the fear of falling, which later transformed into the art of falling and the final evolution as the fear of failing. Um, her conflicts in real life empowered her to authenticate her experiences and struggle through a unique art form. So in 1958, uh, Bourgeois and her husband moved into a terraced house in Chelsea, Manhattan, where she lived and worked for the rest of her life. Um, then in 64, for an exhibition after a long hiatus, Bourgeois presented strange, organically shaped plaster sculptures that contrasted dramatically with the totemic wood pieces that she had exhibited earlier. So there's these, they're like soft structures. They look kind of fleshy. They're made with like odd material it's usually like plaster of paris over fabric or felt or that kind of thing um so 
But alternating between these forms, materials, and scale, and veering between figuration and abstraction became a basic part of her vision, even while she continually probed the same themes, which were loneliness, jealousy, anger, and fear. Hmm. So despite the fact that she rejected the idea that her art was feminist, Bourgeois' subject was the feminine. Okay. So she was not about identifying herself as a feminist, but... Um, works such as uh, Femme Maison and uh, Arch of Hysteria, which are these two right here. Here we go. Grabbing these for you. Okay. All right. Oh, boy. Okay. Femme Maison looks like something that Terry Gilliam drew. Oh, yes. It you is know what? I didn't a barn think about that. with um, at the top with some hands coming out of it. And then the rest of it is a standing nude woman who, um, who, is on a wooden floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yep. then Arch of Hysteria is like an acrobat doing a backflip, but, but with no head. Mm-hmm. And also, I can't tell if it's supposed to be male or female. Uh, I think it's supposed to be female. Okay. No so, breasts. No breasts. Um, so Femme Maison, the one with the, the body with the house on her head, it's a series of paintings in which she explores the relationship of a woman in the home. Okay. So in these works, women's heads have been replaced with houses, isolating their bodies from the outside world and keeping their minds domestic. So this theme goes along with the dehumanization of modern art. In the late 1960s, her imagery became more explicitly sexual as she explored the relationships between men and women and the emotional impact of her troubled childhood. So sexually explicit sculptures such as uh, Janus Fleury suggests both male and female organs. Um, where it's two stunted phalluses are joined back to back to create a sexualized form. So let's take a look at that one. It's not, um, yeah, there she is. <laughs> so here you're making a face. So this is Janus Flurry. <laughs> um, how big is this sculpture? It's, it's pretty big. I would say it's like, um, it's like a couch cushion size. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's like, uh, a couple of flaccid dicks just hanging out with balls. Oh, you see balls in there? Oh yeah. Okay. I can see that. So it's like, it's like they were lopped off and stuck end to end. And so Mm -hmm. they're, they're just like Like hanging. If it was a Mr. Potato Head part. Yes. You have just taken it off and and joined them together. together. Exactly. It's not cute. No, it's certainly not pleasant. And it's, um, I think this, this particular Janus Flurry is made of bronze. Um, so this suggests both male and female organs. From a distance, you might read that as breasts, for example. So um, it shows that she was not afraid to use the female form in new ways. I don't see female in that at all. No. It's definitely dicks. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting that she's considered a feminist artist, even though she, she has, there are a lot of, peni in her artwork um and i'll talk a little bit more about that in the future but um yeah so she has been quoted to say my work deals with problems that are pre-gender um she wrote for example jealousy is not male or female so she deals with universal human conditions um ostensibly but as you'll see she there's a lot of dicks so um, with the rise of feminism, her work found a wider audience. And despite this assertion, in 1976, Femme Maison was featured on the cover of Lucy Lippard's book, From the Center, Feminist Essays on Women's Art, and became an icon of the feminist art movement. So this image of a woman with a house on her head is very easily read as a feminist piece, <clears throat> whether or not she insisted that it was. And so it became kind of an icon mm-hmm. of that. So in 1973, uh, she started teaching at the Pratt Institute, uh, Cooper Union, Brooklyn College, and the New York Studio School of Drawing, Painting, and Sculpture. Um, Her husband, Robert Goldwater, died in 1973. Um, From 74 until 77, she worked at the School of Visual Arts in New York, where she taught printmaking and sculpture, and she also taught for many years in the public schools in Great Neck, Long Island. Um, She started out as a printmaker, specifically um but uh she's best known as a sculptor but she also painted she did she worked in a ton of mixed media um she did basically everything except for video art at this point um so in the early 70s uh she held gatherings called sunday bloody sundays at her home in chelsea oh boy shout out kathleen yeah so (laughs) i'll play it in my interstitial i don't i'll do it 
Um, these salons would be filled with young artists and students whose work would be critiqued by bourgeois. So her ruthlessness and critique and her dry sense of humor led to the naming of these meetings. So she was, at the very least, extremely ruthless in her critiques. Um, she inspired many young students to make art that was feminist in nature, even though she had stated that she considered her own work pregender. And she aligned herself with activists and became a member of the Fight Censorship Group, a feminist anti-censorship collective founded by fellow artist Anita Steckel. And in the 1970s, the group defended the use of sexual imagery in artwork because there was a big um, censorship issue mm -hmm. during that time. Steckel argued, quote, if the erect penis is not wholesome enough to go into museums, it should not be considered wholesome enough to go into women. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> and then the board of directors was like, I understand. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We got this. Um, so in 1978, she was commissioned by the General Services Administration to create Facets of the Sun, her first public sculpture. This work was installed outside um, the Federal Building in Manchester, New Hampshire. And that is somewhere in here. Facets of the Sun is a bunch of mirrors you found at a yard sale and then piled them up on a concrete slab outside. Great. That's exactly what it looks like. That's exactly what it looks like. So, but that is her first public sculpture. So something good to know. And where was it? This was in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire in 1978. Hmm. So she received her first retrospective in 1982. She has been so working. she's been arting for like 50 years Yes, now. she has been working as an artist since 1932. Um, so she had her first retrospective by the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. So until 1982, she had been a peripheral figure in art whose work was more admired than acclaimed. In an interview with Art Forum, timed to coincide with the opening of her retrospective, she revealed that the imagery in her sculptures were wholly autobiographical. Um, she shared with the world that she obsessively relived through her art the trauma of discovering, as a child, that her English governess was also her father's mistress. She was 70 years old and a mixed-media artist who worked on paper with metal, marble, and animal skeletal bones hmm. during this time period. Sounds like Georgia O'Keeffe. Yeah, she has kind of a Georgia O'Keeffe quality to her. Although her and Robert Goldwater seem to have a perfectly happy marriage. Okay. She seemed to have a good relationship with her sons. Like she seemed, her domestic life seemed to be very peaceful. Okay. Um, but her, her childhood trauma was definitely like the fuel that, mm -hmm. that caused her to make this incredible art. Um, so childhood family traumas bred an exorcism in art and she desperately attempted to purge her unrest with her work she felt she could get in touch with issues of female identity the body the fractured family long before the art world and society considered them expressed subjects in art um, this was bourgeois's way to find her center and stabilize her emotional unrest and the new york times said at the time that quote her work is charged with tenderness and violence acceptance and defiance ambivalence and conviction um, she had another retrospective in 1989 at Documenta 9 in Kassel, Germany. And in 1993, when the Royal Academy of Arts staged its comprehensive survey of American art in the 20th century, the organizers did not consider her work of significant importance to include in the survey. Hmm. Uh, however, the survey was criticized for many omissions, with one critic writing that, quote, whole sections of the best American art have been wiped out. And pointing out that very few women were included. Ah, okay. Um, in 2000, her works were selected to be shown in the opening of the Tate Modern in London. And in 2001, she showed at the Hermitage Museum. Now, at this point, do you think that they included her stuff because it's very important or because she was like 80 years old and they were like, yeah. Um, I think they included her artwork because, um, especially like in the 70s, she was kind of like bubbling along on the periphery basically mm -hmm. and that she like hung out with a bunch of artists but she was distinctly her own style okay. but because women artists working in surrealism even in the mid-century was still considered like okay like, bleh, i don't like that um only men what, can is be that the official yeah term that's in the a, word like i'm sorry bleh. that it's an art history term i know mm -hmm. i'm being i'm being very academic but um what i mean by bleh is like uh, a sense of bleh, you know what i mean <laughs> Now that is like one step above like, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. You, you see, you get it. You're right. <laughs> so, but it's very, um, I think a lot of people would agree that she did her best work from like 1975 on. Okay. Basically after her husband died, she really just like oh. completely blew up. Okay. Yeah. I mean, take with that what you will. Um, so her spiders, let's talk about her spiders. 
Uh, in the late 1990s, she began using the spider as a central image in her art. You talked about this in uh, one of your quizzes. Yes. It was an answer and I got it right, which I was like, yes. I had to re- go back and listen to make sure that I got it right. Because <laughs> if I didn't, I'd be very angry at myself. Um, it's known as Maman. 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 Uh, which stands more than nine meters high, uh, which is about 30 feet. It's a steel and marble sculpture from which an addition of six bronzes were subsequently cast. So there are multiple... Uh, versions of Mamo. Uh, it has first made an appearance as part of uh, Bourgeois' commission for the Unilever series for Tate Modern's Turbine Hall in 2000. And the sculpture was also installed at the Qatar National Convention Center in Doha, Qatar. You read Jimmy Dean Sausage Bangers. Yes, yeah. Jimmy Dean Sausage Bangers. Wasn't a sponsor of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, her, oh, we got to do a commercial for Jimmy Dean Sausage Bangers I next time. It. By the way, we have been thinking of, <laughs> we haven't even been thinking about like, story we should just do an entire episode of just commercials commercials. yeah (laughs) because we thought of like four more after we put out that episode anyway um her largest spider sculpture titled memo stands at over 30 feet and has been installed in numerous locations around the world it is the largest spider sculpture ever made by bourgeois and the prevalence of the spider motif in her work has given rise to her nickname as spider woman yeah um so this is the spot i mean it's a very tall spindly it's a very like um tim burton spider yes it's a very Mm -hmm. tim burton spider and um it's so tall you can kind of like walk through it and Mm -hmm. walk underneath it and the body of the spider isn't like um i should have brought a close-up picture of it but it looks more like it's uh, a piece of metal that's like wrapped in ribbon yeah because you can see the marble eggs yes they put she put marble eggs the egg sack yeah it's pretty cool um, in a 2008 film made about her life called uh, Louise Bourgeois, The Spider, The Mistress, and The Tangerine, uh, Bourgeois described these spider sculptures as her, quote, most successful subject. Uh, she uses the spider both predator, a sinister threat, and protector, an industrious repairer, to symbolize the mother figure. Maman. The spinning and weaving of the spider's web links to Bourgeois' own mother with metaphors of spinning, weaving, nurture, and protection. Her mother worked in the family's tapestry restoration business, so she was a weaver, and encouraged Louise to participate. Mm-hmm. So this very, like, connection to Arachne She found it. Weaving. She found the symbol. Yes, there's the symbol. So she also did cells. So while in her 80s, Bourgeois produced two series of enclosed installation works she referred to as cells. Uh, Many are small enclosures into which the viewer is prompted to peer inward at arrangements of symbolic objects. Others are small rooms into which the viewer is invited to enter. In the cell pieces, Bourgeois uses earlier sculptural forms, found objects, as well as personal items that carried strong personal emotional charge for the artist. Okay, cell colon, you better grow up, looks like uh, somewhere somewhere that a kidnapped victim from Law & Order SVU would have been found in the basement of a building. And cell uh, so the last climb looks like an enclosure for maybe some animals at the zoo, mm-hmm. like a round fenced in space with a spiral staircase and lots of circles involved. And then this last one, I do not care for it at all. No, it uh, is called cell XXVI mm-hmm. Tentacion. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> XXVI. Um, and it seems to be a cage and there's a big mirror in it, but also um, like a soft serve cone that <laughs> instead of a cone, it's human legs. I don't like it. Yeah. So I don't um, like, it's nightmare fuel. It is nightmare fuel. And the way that it's shot, the, the photograph of this is not helpful. So cell 26, um, it, which was 2003, is also gives this uh, sense of the spiral, the woman spiral. So it's a soft sculpture hung from the ceiling of the cell. And it looks like a soft serve cone, but it's actually like a soft spiral with two women's legs like poking out the bottom uh, that look kind of loose like they're dead. Um, and it's in front of a mirror. So there you have it. So... Um, her use of found objects in her cells reflect the influence of the artist uh, Marcel Duchamp, who she once referred to as a father figure. So they were very close. Um, Duchamp first used found objects in the early 20th century, and he presented these objects as artworks, calling them his ready-mades. Um, whereas Duchamp's selection of objects was about the idea of the object, Bourgeois' selection is rooted in the memory and biography. The objects actually mean something to her. So she would 
choose personal objects or objects that were similar to her personal objects to kind of get the sense of what she was going for. So the cells enclose psychological and intellectual states, primarily feelings of fear and pain. <laughs> Are they good? Like, but is that good? So I, is it? <laughs> I really love them. The cells specifically, I really love them because they're so, oh, I don't know. They're just like really punk and beautiful in their own like kind of sick way. But if like a 20 year old at it, if a 20 year old art student made these, would they be any good? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be into it. I'd be into this hundred percent. Um, yeah, let me talk a little bit more about the cells and maybe, maybe you'll be able to get it. It's okay. Um, the word cell can refer to both an enclosed room as in a prison, as well as the most basic elements of a plant or animal life as in the cells of the body. So she stated that the cells represent different types of pain, physical, emotional, and psychological, mental, and intellectual. Each cell deals with a fear. Fear is pain. Each cell deals with the pleasure of the voyeur, the thrill of looked, looking and being looked at. So her 1993 work, Cell, You Better Grow Up, um, that speaks directly to her childhood trauma and the insecurity that surrounded her. So her work is powered by confessions, self-portraits, memories, fantasies of a restless being who is seeking through her sculpture a piece and an order in which was missing throughout her childhood. So this idea of the cell, she was psychologically damaged by her father. She was in a cell. And so these personal objects, maybe she found them, she found uh, comfort in those personal objects. So maybe in the cell is both, it's a torture device and also a room, like a soft room to find solace. So all of these things are kind of like playing, interplaying within each other. And the fact that you can kind of like go into those rooms, is that uh, a violation of the artist? Is that a welcome thing from the artist? You know, this idea of the, the, spiral woman she is hung in front of a mirror she's looking at herself it's like it's a whole thing (laughs) sorry and now we're going to talk about body parts don't worry more body parts it's okay we're not going to talk about any more these are the only (laughs) the the Giannis Flory is the only like super gross one I'm going to show you so from her earliest paintings to her latest cells and fabric works Louise Bourgeois explores the human body and especially her later works she was all about the genitalia So in the 60s, the body forms and body parts in her sculptures became more organic and very different from earlier sculptures in both shape and the materials she used. So she began to use materials such as latex, plaster, marble, and bronze, and she also used and repeated rounded forms suggestive of male and female genitals and breasts. Um, This one, Tits, from 1967, um, is a small sculpture cast in bronze. It's about um, the size of, I'd say, a hot dog. Uh, (laughs) It looks like an eggplant. It does. It looks a little bit like an eggplant. Um, the sculpture, as the title indicates, represents two breasts fused together to create a single bulbous form. And this double mirrored form is something that Bourgeois used a lot in her work and shows the influence of surrealism. Um, tits relates to Janus Flory uh, from 1968, which is why I put them on the same page. And both Tits and Janus Flory point in opposite directions, the past and the future, suggesting the importance of the past to Bourgeois. In sculptures such as these, Bourgeois uses fragmented body parts to investigate complex emotional states, and they appear regularly in Bourgeois' work and are often referred to as part objects. So they are both body parts, but because they are disembodied from the body, they are objects. So part objects. Um, As she said once, quote, I have nothing against the penis. It's the wearer. (laughs) So, um, Louise Bourgeois died of heart failure. <laughs> she turned over the page. Sorry. Oh, I know. Yana's Flurry's on there. Okay. We're just going to hide that. All right. Um, she died of heart failure on May 31st, 2010 at the Beth Israel Medical Center in Manhattan. She was 98 years old. Um, Wendy Williams, the managing director of the Louise Bourgeois studio, announced her death. She had continued to create artwork until her death. Her last piece is being finished the week before. Wow. It's that good French lifestyle. Oh, yeah. She ate cheese and butter Butter and probably smoked. Yep. Uh, The New York Times said that her work, quote, shared a set of repeated themes centered on the human body and its need for nurture and protection in a frightening world. She was survived by her two sons, Alain Bourgeois and Jean-Louis Bourgeois, and her first son, Michel, died in 1990. Um, So she also, speaking of the body part thing, she also made these latex, like, I don't know. They were like costumes. They looked like lumpy latex costumes that she would like pull over her body. And they, she had a head hole, but no armholes. So she would just kind of like walk around and they looked sort of like amoebas. They had like these big lumpy, um, appendages on them. 
Um, and there's a after Stonewall exhibit. Well, there was this past May, um, at uh, in Soho, and one of her pieces was like laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. It was one of her like body pieces. And also this photo that I'm going to talk about in a bit. Um, but she was very important to the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so in the last year of her life, she used her art to speak up for LGBTQ equality. And she created the piece I Do, which is here. Um, oh, that's nice. Isn't it nice? Uh, depicting two flowers growing from one stem to benefit the nonprofit organization Freedom to Marry. Yeah, it's two flowers and one stem. Yep. There's no there's no dicks or disembodied or... <laughs> nope. Or... or <laughs> decapitated women anywhere nope. no it's very beautiful right. um uh bourgeois had said quote everyone should have the right to marry to make a commitment to love someone forever is a beautiful thing uh bourgeois had a history of activism on behalf of lgbtq equality having created artwork for the aids activist organization act up in 1993 so she had been doing it for all of her life um she was photographed by robert maplethorpe holding one of her phallic constructions which is the photo that you see here um, art critic Jerry Seltz of New York Magazine once said of the portrait, quote, Robert Maplethorpe's iconic 1982 portrait speaks volumes about bourgeois free spiritedness, grace, tenacity, and the kinky perversity of her work. In it, the 71-year-old sculptress looks like a shaman seductress, one of Munch's vampiric castration queens, a maker of voodoo dolls, and a diva grandmother rolled into one. Her works became horror comedies of sex, memory, and living within the confines of a body. Um, art essentially was her tool for coping. It was an exorcism. As she put it, quote, art is a guarantee of sanity. And that is my topic <laughs> on Louise Bourgeois. But I love this picture of her. Yeah. She's got a great face. Um, I'll post this picture. We'll have it as the header image for our, our Twitter and our Facebook. Censor it. I'll we'll crop it or I'll find another one. I'll I'll find the other Robert Maplethorpe where she's like wearing a little bow where and she's, she's like not, pulling her where she's not holding out. a dick like a bazooka. Yeah, I mean she's got it tucked under her arm like it's a like it's a ham from the market, and she's wearing this great feathered jacket and she's smiling like she's got like she's like I'm holding the dick. That's what she's. I mean, doesn't it look? Look at her eyes. Your dad is not going to like this episode <laughs> no, at all. Dad's not going to like this, but that's what art is, Dad. Sorry. Um, so that is my quick and dirty on the artist Louise Bourgeois. She's not just spiders. Not just spiders. Not just spiders. And she really had um, like a, a wide range of her oeuvre. Like it was just like she did paper. a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything and sculpture and all sorts of stuff. So um, that's what I think is most interesting about her is that she was continuously reinventing herself literally up until like the week she died. Oh. So that's cool. Merci, Lauren. Uh, Jutalo, Julia. <laughs> Isn't that, is that what I'm supposed to say? De nada. De nada. <laughs> so, uh, my quiz is entirely in the French language. No, I'm kidding. Perfect. <laughs> Could you imagine? Um, <laughs> is your mouth just gets tinier and tinier, tinier and tinier until I'm just like, Okay, so my quiz today is on the bourgeoisie and arachnids. Question number one. The term bourgeoisie has a couple of definitions, but in the Middle Ages, it meant a legally defined class of French inhabitants having the rights of citizenship and political rights in a city. What is the equivalent term in Germany, which I'd eat with ketchup and mustard? Question number two. True or false? Daddy longlegs, or harvesters, or harvestmen, are an extremely venomous species of spider, but their mouths are too small to bite people, rendering them harmless. Question number three. This 17th century playwright and actor wrote the hilarious Les Bourgeois Gentômes, a comedy ballet in 1670, but his most famous works include Tartuffe, The Misanthrope, and the School of Wives, and he nearly died on stage. He just died later after collapsing on stage. Who is this Frenchy thespian? Question number four. Name the arachnid that features in this 2011 made-for-TV film from the description. Creatures that for years have been rumored to torment armed forces in the Middle East are inadvertently introduced to the southwestern deserts of the United States. 
The creatures now freely hunt for prey, unafraid of any predator, including man. No place is safe. No one is beyond their paralyzing sting. In the end, a number of hardy fighters band together to make one last stand against the creatures. Here's a hint. They really don't have anything to do with dromedaries. Question number five. A modern bourgeois example would probably be the yuppie, so coined in the 80s, though its origins are suspect. What does yuppie mean? And for bonus points, what's a dink? Question number six. The 2002 monster comedy action film Eight-Legged Freaks stars, well, a bunch of CGI eight-legged freaks, along with David Arquette, Carrie Wurr, and what now Marvel superhero and serious actress who once covered Tom Waits to no great success? Question number seven. This 1922 book by Sinclair Lewis satirizes an American bourgeois man, a middle-aged realtor, booster, and joiner in the Midwestern city of Zenith, who, despite being unimaginative, self-important, and hopelessly conformist and middle-class, is aware that there must be more to life than money and the consumption of the best things that money can buy. What book am I talking about? Question number eight. This German hard rock heavy metal band has been on the scene since 1965 with albums such as Animal Magnetism, Love at First Sting, and Sting in the Tail. Rolling Stone described them as, quote, the heroes of heavy metal, and MTV called them ambassadors of rock. The Carolina Hurricanes also used their most famous song as their goal horn. What blistering band is this? Question number nine. Which rap trio is best known for their song, Bad and Bougie, which topped at number one on the Billboard charts in 2016? A. Spillage Village B. Run the Jewels C. Goody Mob or D. Migos And finally, question number 10. What lucky sea creature was recently discovered this year to be a member of the arachnid family? It resembles a crustacean, but isn't one, is used as bait for eels and conch, and is famous for its creepy blue blood. I'll give you a minute to think about it. We'll be right back with answers. Question number one, the term bourgeoisie has a couple of definitions, but in the Middle Ages, it meant a legally defined class of French inhabitants having the rights of citizenship and political rights in a city. What is the equivalent term in Germany, which I'd eat with ketchup and mustard? I have a, a Frankfurter. Uh, wiener. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, uh, sh- uh, go the other way. That's the uh, other way. Kibasi. No. A hamburger. Uh, uh, a burger. Yes, it is Jesus. a burger. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have I probably should have put cheese in there too. Anyway. Okay, question number two. True or false? Daddy long legs or harvesters or harvest men are an extremely venomous species of spider, but their mouths are too small to bite people, rendering them harmless. False. False. None of the known species of harvest men have venom glands. I've never heard of a harvest man. Neither have I, but Daddy Longlegs is, I guess, um, not the size is of originalism. Yeah. Uh, their wee jaws are not hollowed fangs, but grasping claws that are typically very small and not strong enough to break human skin. So they don't even, they can't even bite you, yeah. and they're not even feminist, venomous. Okay, question number three. This 17th century playwright and actor wrote the hilarious Les Bourgeois Gentilhommes. <laughs> Gentilhomme, Gentilhomme, a comedy ballet in 1670, but his most famous works include Tartuffe, The Misanthrope, 
and the School for Wives, and he nearly died on stage. He just died later after collapsing on stage. Who is this Frenchy thespian? This is Moliere. It is Moliere. Uh, so in 1673, during a production of his final play, The Imaginary Invalid, Moliere, who suffered from pulmonary tur- tuberculosis, <gasps> yeah, he was seized by a coughing fit and a hemorrhage while playing the hypochondriac Argon. He finished the performance, but collapsed again and died a few hours later. Um, the superstition that green brings bad luck to actors is said to originate from the color of the clothing he was wearing at the time of his death. But the color green did not give him TB. So yeah. I think you can wear green. Yeah. It's fine. Question number four. Name the arachnid that features in this 2011 made-for-TV film from the description. Yeah. Creatures that for years have been ordered to torment. Uh, here's a hint. They really don't have anything to do with dromedaries. Uh, I don't have any idea. Um, eight-legged freaks. Uh, camel spiders. I've never heard of this. Uh uh yeah camel spiders the movie is just called camel spiders uh chosen because they're hideous and terrifying they're like a hybrid scorpion spider they are so is this a sci-fi is a sci-fi channel thing okay yeah um their their technical name is solifugae and they are the subject of many legends and exaggerations about their size speed behavior appetite and lethality they are not especially large the biggest having a leg span of about 4.7 inches or 12 centimeters but they are pretty fast, and they are not venomous. Um, the powerful jaws of a large specimen may inflict a painful nip, but nothing medically significant. Okay, they so are these like, are a real thing. Yeah, they're a real thing. They made a movie about, but saying that they're 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 venomous. Um, yeah, and okay. They will eat a man. The poster is huh. not pleasant not to look for at. Me. No. Okay, question number five. A modern bourgeois example would probably be the yuppie, so coined in the eighties, though its origins are suspect. What does yuppie mean? And for bonus points, what is a dink? Okay, young urban professional. Yes. And dual income, no kids. Yes, dual income, no kids. So uh, yuppie gained currency in the United States in 1983 when syndicated newspaper columnist Bob Green published a story about a business networking group founded in 1982 by the former radical leader Jerry Rubin, formerly of the Youth International Party, whose members were called yippies. Yippies. So Green said that he had heard people in the networking group who met at Studio 54, of course, um, joke that Ruben had gone from being a yippie to being a yuppie. Ah. So the headline of Green's story was from yippie to yuppie. Um, East Bay Express humorist Alice Kahn claimed to have coined the word in a 1983 column, but this claim is disputed. And as you said, a dink is double or dual income, no kids. So, I mean, we're all dinks, aren't we? Uh, Question number six. The 2002 moder- monster comedy action film Eight-Legged Freaks stars, well, a bunch of CGI eight-legged freaks, along with David Arquette, Carrie Wurr, and which, which now Marvel superhero and serious actress who once covered Tom Waits to no great success. Scarlett Johansson. It was Scarlett Johansson. She plays Ashley Parker, the daughter of the sheriff. Also, just FYI, just as an FYI, David Arquette's Wikipedia page <laughs> lists him as, quote, an American actor, professional wrestler, film director, producer, screenwriter, and fashion designer. I don't think he's been successful huh. at any of those things. Huh. I mean, bless you for working the way you do, David Arquette, but... <sighs> Question number seven. This 1922 book by Sinclair Lewis satirizes an American bourgeois man, a middle-aged realtor, booster, and joiner in the Midwestern city of Zenith, who, despite being unimaginative, self-important, and hopelessly conformist and middle class, is aware that there must be more to life than money and the consumption of the best things that money can buy. What book am I talking about? All right, here's the thing. Okay. I, in my brain, have scrambled. I have scrambled Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, and... uh, who did you ask about? Sinclair Lewis. I've, yeah. And then there's like another Lewis somebody that Lewis I... Lewis Carroll? No. Oh, okay. Um, and I, and, and also Thornton Wilder's in there too for oh, some okay. reason. Um, can you give me the first letter? It's a B. Song by Yaga. Nope. That's an evil woman who steals children and is just a head that floats. Um, It's Babbitt. See? It's it's all scrambled 
It's all scrambled. You know what? We'll just we'll do the difference between Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis, and we'll just do an episode on that. I'll just call it a day. Um, H.L. Mencken once wrote of Sinclair, quote, if there was ever a novelist among us with an authentic call to the trade, it is this red-haired tornado from the Minnesota wilds. He is also respected for his strong characterizations of modern w- working women. Hmm. So, question number eight. This German hard rock heavy metal band has been on the scene since 1965 with albums such as Animal Magnetism, Love at First Sting, and Sting in the Tail. Rolling Stone described them as the heroes of heavy metal, and MTV called them ambassadors of rock. The Carolina Hurricanes also used their most famous song as their goal horn. What blistering band is this? I don't have any... I don't have, a, I don't have anything. No? Okay. It's the Scorpions. I don't know who they are. The Sabres also use the 2000 orchestral version of the song. Huh. Yeah. Who are they? <laughs> uh, you know, here I am. Rock you like uh, a hurricane. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they did They're rock you German like metal band? I don't know, right? I didn't know they were around for that long. I didn't know they were German. I didn't hmm. know they had been around since 1965. Well, there you go. I oh. definitely thought that song was like ACDC. Yeah, I mean, I figured it was something like that. Yeah. Uh, question number nine. Which rap trio is best known for their song, Bad and Bushy, which topped at number one on the Billboard charts in 2016? A, Spillage Village, B, Run the Jewels, C, Goody Mob, or D, Migos? Migos. It is Migos. You taught me that. I did. Migos consists of Takeoff, Offset, and Quavo. Offset was the only one I could name. Yeah. Those are three men, Takeoff, Offset, and Quavo. Uh, Offset is the one who's married to Cardi B. Okay. Also, I don't remember which is which, but... One of those three guys is the uncle to the other and the cousins of another one. Whoa. Yeah. They were all raised together, all like 26. Anyway, (laughs) I learned a lot about Migos. (laughs) Wow. I learned a lot about Migos. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Question number 10. What lucky sea creature was recently discovered this year to be a member of the arachnid family? It resembles a crustacean, but isn't one. Is used for bait, for eels and conch, and is famous for its creepy blue blood. It's a horseshoe crab. It is a horseshoe crab. Um, they're actually not true crabs, as I mentioned, and they swim upside down. Did you know that? I they didn't. swim with like their legs up oh. and their <laughs> and their shells. They kind of like. Weird. They're ancient. They've been around Weird. forever, like millions of years. Weird. So that was my quiz on uh, the bourgeoisie related and arachnids. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. <laughs> Um, yeah, if you, I don't know, want to be on the show, I guess we don't seem to have much of a vetting process. Uh, (laughs) no, if you want to send us some listener submitted trivia, um, or tell us about something that you know that we don't, which is a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, feel free to contact us. You can shoot us an email at misinformation at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod. Um, you can, uh, write on our Facebook page, misinformation and trivia podcast, and uh, you can just head to our website, www.missinfopod.com. And you can stream us from our website, and you can pretty much find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are everywhere and We're nowhere. everywhere now, yes. y'all. So you can get just us in your ear holes 24-7 if you so desire that. I wouldn't, but, you know, to each their own. Life is a rich tapestry. Um <laughs> Uh, thanks so much for listening to my um, very art historical topic today. We we'll, ca- we'll catch you next time when there will be no dicks talked about. No, there will be no dicks. Um, uh, thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>